0: Hey, Phil. It's Toddus. Hey, Toddus, How are you? Good. I'm on the line with Phil Huber, who is the chief investment officer of Huber Financial Advisors, and he is the author of the Bips and Pieces blog. Uh, I asked Phil on today to talk about a recent post of his entitled My Investing Bible. You know, book recommendations are kind of a tricky business, which is why I'm I'm kind of loath to do them. But I, I've, my experience has been that if you rec- recommend a book to someone, and it's either too technical or challenging. It can kind of put the reader off of a topic, and if you recommend something that's kind of a little too simple or too easy, the the reader may feel insulted. So uh, that might be a good place to start. Phil, what was it about uh, this book, Expected Returns, uh, that changed the way you think about investing?
1: So I think I think the first thing I'll point out is, is as you mentioned earlier, it gets tricky when you're making book recommendations to people because, as you as you said, the you know it could be too dense or technical and turn people off, or, or the other end of the spectrum. So. Uh, When people ask me, I kind of keep two in my back pocket that I uh, will recommend. This one that we'll talk about here today, expected returns, is definitely uh, for the professional investor. Uh, and is you know, it comes in about 500 plus pages, very kind of heavy and dense, you know, for a more novice investor, I, I typically steer them towards something like Howard Marks uh, the most important thing, which I think is a lot more readable to uh, your average person. But as, in terms of my own experience and how I look back on my career and, and think about what book has most influenced, how uh, I think about building and constructing portfolios for uh, the clients that we serve at our firm um, i don't think anything's really been as impactful as expected returns yeah
0: no it's definitely uh, it's definitely like you said a book for professionals and one of the things i liked about it that it is like you said it is kind of highly structured and it really does cover the waterfront in terms of uh, really all anything in terms of uh, investing both uh, pu- uh, publicly traded assets private assets and things like that
1: so yeah that's one of the nice things about it is it, it leaves really very few stones unturned in the investment landscape. And, you know, I think like any book in our lives, it has a really profound effect on us. A lot of it has to do with the timing of when it came into your life. And, you know, this was relatively early in my career where All I really kind of knew at the time was very traditional asset allocation, the kind of whole, you know, stock and bond orthodoxy that most investors are accustomed to. And so when I cracked open this book and started digging into some of the other topics uh, that it spoke to, as well as kind of the way it framed thinking about, you know, asset allocation and expected returns, it was just it kind of turned my 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 thinking at the time on its head. And I think a lot of that can be traced to two pretty powerful visual aids that are found at various points throughout the book ok uh, the first is um, there's the, the old parable of the elephant and the, and the blind men where you've got, you know, one blind man touching the tail of an elephant and, um, you know, thinking it's a rope, another touching the leg and thinking it's a tree trunk and so on and so forth. Um, and all of these individuals have a very narrow frame of reference to the elephant and, and are unable to see the bigger picture in front of them. And, and that's uh, kind of a trap that investors fall into a lot of the times. And so if we think of how most investors view... Diversification—it's often through the lens of asset class diversification. How much do I own between stocks and bonds and real estate and cash? Whereas this book then presents a a second visual, which is this cube, where it looks at at diversification through three kind of three-dimensional a three-dimensional way. One being the traditional asset class approach, but then two others—one focused on risk factors, so things like you know economic growth and inflation and uh, uh, liquidity and and tail risks. And then the other third element being what they call in the book strategy style. So these are things that we you know hear a lot more about today in terms of being factor investing or smart beta, things that are more stylistic within asset classes as opposed to across them. So things like value and momentum and, and carry type type characteristics. And so being able to kind of cull all those three things together and, and have a kind of a way to look at a portfolio through a, a through multiple lenses as opposed to one that was really powerful to me and something that was new to me at the time that I read it.
0: Yeah, no, the visuals uh, which you, which you can find in, in Phil's post are, are are really interesting and and one of the things you had in the post which I thought uh, kind of gets to this topic as well as you kind of talked about four things, um, kind of four factors as it were when thinking about um, returns. And uh, I'll just the, and the first one is his you know uh, that Ilmanen El- talks about in his book. And the first one's historical average returns. And like you said, that's oftentimes where people stop. They essentially look at what um, a market has done or a stock has done over historically and kind of take that information uh, kind of as gospel and really don't take uh, any additional steps or, or think much more about uh, an asset class than that.
1: Yeah. And I think and then the other ones that he, he describes um, are, are risk-based and behavioral theories that you want to ascribe to different return characteristics um, that assets have um, because you want to be have some co- some level of confidence that these different return premiums are going to continue and persist into the future and so there should be some economic rationale as to why you believe that would be the case uh, and then the other is this idea of time varying returns and forward-looking market indicators so using things like valuation like you know trend to, to help inform asset allocation decisions and then the last one that he talks about is discretionary views. that's I think what most investors should rely upon the least of anything um, and certainly in our own practice that's you know we, we don't really um, incorporate a lot of discretionary viewpoints into our you know asset allocation decisions just because we we don't think we have as, as good a chance of anybody of, of making those kind of calls uh, on, a, on a regular and persistent basis um, and so you know we, we tend to focus more on the, on the first three
0: yeah no I think that's right but I think the, the discretionary part is interesting I, I read it a little bit more more broadly, in the sense that you know, the, the thing that came to my mind was let's say let's just say ESG and type investing. You know, um, you know, to my view, that's kind of a discretionary choice for the investor who wants to focus on uh, companies or factors or screens um, in an ESG t- uh, type of style. And to me, that's discretionary. There's nothing in theory, and there's nothing in the returns that, that would tell you to do that or not to do it. But if that's a choice that you make uh, and it's one that you can live with one way or another, I think that's kind of where discretion at least that's the way I kind of think about discretion to a degree in terms of portfolio construction but I think you' but I think your original point about thinking about you know either like you said either getting down to the new degree of a stock selection or things like that I think that's uh, I think I think that's absolutely correct that's actually a great point i I hadn't thought of it like that. And so yeah the other thing that I think is you you taught you mentioned it earlier was you know we've kind of had this explosion in uh, factor investing. And there's all sorts of vehicles, both uh, ETFs and, you know, uh, open-end funds that are uh, trying to take advantage of these different factors. And, you know, the, the second point that you mentioned, kind of talking about risk-based and behavioral explanations, I think that's the thing that's oftentimes missing, is that, you know, we have, you know, you see a factor and it's had some sort of performance, and then people uh, project that performance into the future without really giving, a second thought as to, you know, what it is that's behind that performance and why it might uh, persist persist
1: in the future or more likely not. Exactly. I think it has to have either one of those two underpinnings, if not a combination of the two, uh, to give you the, the, the level of confidence you need to, to really you know believe that these things are going to deliver long term, because you actually you do need a long term time frame to capture some of these, as we've seen, you know, looking back at value, for example, for the past you know five to ten years. A lot of people, if they don't really have the um, confidence as to why they think value should work, then they're ultimately not going to have the wherewithal to stick with it when it goes through rough patches. And so you 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 need that kind of understanding as to where and why these returns are available, and knowing that they're also not free lunches. Um, you know, they can and will go through very long, and and they they feel a lot longer as they're happening periods of underperformance. And so um, you know, there, there's definitely an element of mean reversion that can take place, but you've got to be able to stick through, um, you know, like, as Cliff Asens so, likes to say, hold on to these things like grim death. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, we're getting kind of to the end of our time, but I think one of the things you mentioned in the post is uh, the need for having humility and being pragmatic. And I think those are, I think those are kind of watchwords for everyone, no matter kind of what style of investor they are or
1: how they approach things. Um, having a little humility goes a long way. Absolutely. And I, I would say it's anyone who's listening to this and, and wants to, you know, give this book a read. It can be a bit intimidating at first glance, but it's not something that needs to be read through consecutively. I, I think, you know, the first uh, few chapters and the last few chapters are probably my favorite. And then you can kind of cherry pick the the middle chapters that like delve deep into you know individual case studies and asset classes and, and so forth. So that would be my recommendation if it seems a, a bit intimidating at first glance.
0: Well, that's great, Phil. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, Thomas. Thanks for having me.